Well, hello everybody. Today I'd like to welcome Eric Wittenberg to the show. Eric is an award-winning Civil War author. A native of southeastern Pennsylvania, Eric was educated at Dickinson College, the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. He is a partner in the Columbus, Ohio law firm of Cook, Slidoge, and Wittenberg, where he manages the firm's litigation practice. Eric is the author of 22 critically acclaimed books on the American Civil War, several of which have won awards, as well as more than three dozen articles published in national magazines. He is in regular demand as a speaker and tour guide and travels the country regularly doing both. He serves on the boards of trustees of the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust and the Little Bighorn Associates and often works with the American Battlefields Trust on battlefield preservation initiatives. He is also the program coordinator for the Chambersburg Civil War Seminars. His specialty is cavalry operations in the Civil War. He and his wife Susan reside in Columbus, Ohio. Now, before we get to the show, let me just appeal to your better judgment by asking that you go to theroguehistorian.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to these kinds of things. And while you're there, please be sure and leave a rating and a comment. Okay, let's get to it. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining me. I really, uh, really appreciate you coming on the show, man. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. So I hold here in my hand your la uh, one of your latest books uh, of, of the many uh, that you author and co-author. And I have this one co-authored with uh, Edmund Sargas and Penny Bark, uh, Seceding from Secession, the Civil War, Politics, and the Creation of West Virginia. And it's a very good book. I enjoyed it uh, a great deal. And I want to get into all the ins and outs of the book naturally, as I always do. But before I do that, um, something that I like to ask all of my guests uh, uh, is, is, what is it that drew you to this particular subject? Um, and and why, I mean, what inspired you to write about West Virginia? Well, that's a good question. It's a valid one. Uh, Judge Sargas and my co-author, Ed Sargas, is a United States federal district court judge. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he grew up in the southeastern corner of Ohio, just across the river from Wheeling. And uh, in fact, we, we got to be friends because he reached out to me. Uh, he was doing some research on a cavalry officer who was from his hometown of Belmont in Belmont County, Ohio. Uh, the town's called St. Clairsville and asked for help. And, and we just sort of struck up a friendship. And I had been looking at questions involving the creation of West Virginia for some time because I had questions about the constitutionality of some of it. And I, I reached out to Ed one day and said, hey, let's grab lunch. I have an idea I want to talk to you about. And this started out as a law review article is, is really where it had its roots. I had, you know, I, I practiced law for a living. I had published four scholarly pieces on the law very early in my career and said, okay, been there, done that. This doesn't pay very well. It's time to move on to something else. And that's when I started writing history. Mm -hmm. But it it occurred to me, you know, it has been the better part of 30 years since I published anything scholarly on the law. Maybe it's time to, to do something. And I said, what a great idea. Let's look at the, the creation of West Virginia. 
And I ran the idea by Ed over lunch and he said, yeah, let's do that. And I, I started, we, we divided up the labors and I very quickly, as I started writing, realized this is a book, this isn't a law review article. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to Ed and said, just that, this is a book, this isn't a law review article. And he said, well, I'd like to involve Penny. Penny's his, his permanent staff attorney mm-hmm. uh, in the process. And uh, I said, great, the more the merrier. Let's, uh, let's work as a team and let's see what we can accomplish. And that's how the book came, uh, came about. It's a, it's a topic of interest to me simply because I pass through Wheeling going east all the time. In Ed's case, it's because he grew up just across the river and his wife practiced law in Wheeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it just seemed to me to be a, a really interesting topic that had very little in the way of substantive coverage and hadn't had anything modern done other than uh, the, the centennial of the Civil War, you know, 50 some years ago. There had been nothing since the turn of the century. Wow. And I said, there's a spot here. If we can do something good with this, we can really fill a niche. Well, that's great. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's rare that we come, especially in Civil War history, because it's, it's been so thoroughly covered, um, you know, in the last 150 years uh, plus. And, and, and I was just speaking to Gary Gallagher a few weeks ago on this very show, and I asked him about gaps in the literature. And it's like, you know, it's, it's difficult to find something that, that really hasn't been covered uh, pretty extensively and pretty recently. And I think in this case, you know, yeah, in this case, I think you found something. This is, this is good. And, you know, and, and, and we were talking earlier about how, um, you know, I discussed the formation of West Virginia as, I guess, kind of the fifth border state, if you will. I mean, I mean we might uh, argue about that, but, uh, you know, as sort of the fifth border state. And I won't argue with that. In <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, the, and the kids think it's really fascinating because there's a lot of things that we have to deal with in order to form um, and to get this state into, into actual being. And it's a really interesting story. Uh, and so I'm glad you covered this. And so now I've got a textual reference to send the kids to, to, um, you know, to read through some of this stuff. And you are very thorough. And you, and I imagine you mentioned that you divided up the responsibilities as, as, as a co-author of the book, but it's very thorough in terms of your primary resource um, uh, in the book. I mean, it's, it's, it's well-documented. Um, uh, and, and, and I appreciate that very much. It's great to have a book like this that the kids can turn to and see that in the text, you know, without having to rifle through the footnotes necessarily. It's, it's right. right there in the text. I, I was the primary author of the first eight chapters, mm-hmm. and Ed was the primary author of the three chapters on the litigation. Mm-hmm. And then we combined forces and wrote the conclusion together. Mm-hmm. So the, the first eight chapters that built up to the end of the civil war were, I mean, they fall in my sweet spot. So for mm-hmm. me, it was, it was easy enough to do the research. We're lucky in this day and age of digitized resources that there are so many period newspapers that are readily accessible that one can access uh, as an example, the entire run of the wheeling intelligencer, which was probably the leading paper uh, among the secessionists who, who brought about the creation of, of West Virginia, the entire run of it's available on the, the Library of Congress's website. So finding material wasn't hard. Mm-hmm. It was just a function of plowing through it. <laughs> right, which can be tedious. Which can um, be tedious. Yeah, but it is great. I mean, you know, and I, I was um, uh, between the end of my, the, the finish, when, when I finished my dissertation and, and, and revising that into 
uh, my first book was sort of the age when everything was becoming digitized. And so I found it really like the, the New York Public Library, for example, has been digitizing and digitizing. And they were doing that right as I was finishing up my research and, and then begin to working on, uh, on the revision process. And I love it. Uh, I mean, it can be a blessing and a curse because at one point, you know, when do you stop? You have to, because now that everything's available, especially for people who you and I who do the 19th century, there's so much documentation. Exactly. Uh, that, you know, at some point you've got to like, okay, uh, that's I, I'm good. And now I'm going to go forth and, uh, and publish what I've got. But look, this, you're the perfect then the person uh, to ask this question uh, since, you, since you dealt with so much of the, uh, with, the, with the first eight chapters. You know early on that there have been longstanding tensions um, in the state of Virginia, uh, the pre-1863 state of Virginia, um, that, uh, uh, or pre-1860, 1861 state of Virginia, the longstanding tensions between the western, northwestern counties uh, and the rest of the state. Can you describe those for us? Sure. Well, they, a lot of it has to do with geographic uh, situations. And, and there really is a, a physical divider between those northwestern counties and the Tidewater region in the eastern counties, and that being that physical barrier being the Allegheny Mountains. Mm -hmm. and, and those people who were to the east of the Allegheny Mountains tended to be Southern in their approach. And what I mean by that is they were a Tidewater society. Their capital was Richmond. They, they had a focus on the Eastern half of the state. They were an agronomy as opposed to some other sort of economic region. Whereas those uh, areas to the West of the Alleghenies were much more mountainous. They were not particularly agrarian in their approach. The economy was not necessarily agrarian. Uh, they, they tended to be closer in proximity to the people of Maryland, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, their, their primary avenue of commerce was the Ohio River. Uh, it wasn't the Potomac. It wasn't the Chesapeake Bay, as it was for the people in the eastern part of the state. People in the eastern part of the state tended to be descendants of the English settlers, whereas people in the western part of the state were more Scots-Irish and German. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of different cultural things going on, and you've got much closer ties. Let me put it this way. Wheeling, which was the first capital of West Virginia and where all of these events took place, is 60 miles from Pittsburgh. It's 350 miles from Richmond. Mm -hmm. So their, ori their orientation is going to be towards the Ohio Valley more than it would be towards the Piedmont, right? I mean, it, it, that's it, exactly right. Yeah, it just sort of it just sort of makes sense. Now, now after Fort Sumter, now Virginia, the state of Virginia, had had toyed with the idea of secession leading up to Fort Sumter already. They had had conventions and voted it down. Uh, I believe the Unionist sentiment in Virginia, you know, prevailed at least for a time. That's then, correct. Course, at, least, at least, of course, but uh, but w after Fort Sumter and Lincoln's call for seventy five thousand troops to suppress a rebellion. Um, uh, Virginia quickly moved to secede. Nothing within a matter of days had voted the state out of the union. Uh, uh, that's correct. And Letcher, Governor John Letcher, the uh, governor of Virginia, had already, even before the secession vote had taken place, had already pledged uh, Virginia's military resources to the Confederacy and had already ordered that the arsenal at Harper's Ferry be seized. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what the secession convention was was going to do, Letcher was already moving Virginia in the direction of being aligned with the Confederacy. 
And so in a sense, the convention just sort of confirmed what was already in motion anyway. And I don't, I don't really think that the, that the Virginians, and they stated this many times, would have ever, you know, would have ever lent themselves to the suppression uh, or, or the, the coercion of states back into the union uh, at, at the point of Vietnam. I mean, they, they, they supported the right of secession, whether they seceded themselves or not. And so this confirms really what's already in motion. My question to you is, you know, the representatives in, these, in, the, in the convention from the Western, Northwestern counties of Virginia, um, how did they respond to this, this quick movement, this reinvigorated uh, secessionist movement? Well, they made it clear that if the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia were going to secede from the union, they were going to take steps to prevent that from happening in their part of the state. Uh, they were very clear about it. And that's what, what brought about the scheduling of, of what was, today we call it the first Wheeling Convention. It was just the Wheeling Convention, uh, which was held in uh, May of 1860 to 1861. And the whole purpose of the Wheeling Convention was to set in wheels a process of how uh, to the, these Northwestern counties would be able to, for lack of a better way to describe it, secede from Virginia to remain loyal to the Union. And in fact, the earliest advocate of this was a man named John Carlisle, who ultimately changed his tune and became aggressively opposed to secessionism for reasons that are not terribly clear, but uh, Carlisle brought up the whole idea of creating a new state at the first Wheeling Convention and was voted down because they felt it was too early. They felt it was too soon and that, that it wasn't a topic that, that should be addressed until after such time as the referendum was held uh, in, in May of 61, uh, whereby the uh, voters of the Commonwealth of Virginia ratified the secession ordinance and left the union. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the decision was, we're not going to address this until we know the outcome of the referendum. But if the referendum passes come June, we're going to convene a second convention. And that's exactly what they did. And it was at that second convention was when the uh, really important steps were taken. They declared the uh, seats of elected offices in the Commonwealth of Virginia to have been abandoned by the traitors. Mm -hmm. They declared the office of governor, lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, um, I think treasurer of the state to be open. They formed what they called the restored government of Virginia. The convention elected a man from Morgantown uh, by the name of Francis Harrison Pierpont as the governor of this restored government of Virginia and uh, proclaimed that this government that was voted for by nobody mm -hmm. except the, the attendees at the convention uh, had the authority and the power to speak for the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, needless to say, that didn't go over real well with the folks in Richmond. And um, there was quite a bit of mocking. Uh, there was quite a bit of, yeah, right type of syndrome, uh, but it, it, Pierpont immediately set the wheels in motion to create a new state. Mm -hmm. And that's where the constitutional issues arise. But uh, it, it was very clear, and, and the people of the Northwestern counties made it abundantly clear that they were not going to go with the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia and leave the Union 
And if that meant that they had to secede from Virginia and create a new state, that's what they were going to do. And, and they, they made no bones about it. It wasn't a secret. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously that's exactly what happened. Well, this I find very interesting. So they, they, in essence, they put forward a legitimate, a legitimate government of Virginia and, and the Lincoln administration recognizes Correct. this. Why is it that they move then immediately if they're, if they're, if they're recognized by the federal government as the legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, government of Virginia, why is it that they move immediately to create a new state now? I, I think that there was a lot of things that went into that decision. One of them is, is these, for lack of a better way to describe it, sort of cultural issues that we described at the beginning of this conversation, mm-hmm. that the people of the Northwestern counties really did not have an affinity for the people of the East and had much stronger ties to Maryland, Virginia, and Ohio. Uh, I think they simply decided that they wanted to have their own state with their own government, with their own affiliation with the people that they wanted to be in, in commerce with, and that they wanted to sever the ties with, with the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's a lot of reasons for that, aside from the cultural. In, in 1850, I believe it was, uh, the, there was a constitutional convention in Richmond to draft a new state constitution. Mm-hmm. And that new state constitution enacted provisions that gave a strong preference for taxation purposes to the slaveholders of the East that put the financial burden on the people of the West. And uh, they were not interested in carrying that load for the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia any longer. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to get out from underneath that. That, I think, played a big role in it. So in some ways, this is already, this is kind of in motion, and it has been for some time. Yeah, it, it had been. And Daniel Webster uh, gave a speech in Virginia in the early 1850s where he predicted that within 10 years there would be a new state. And he was exactly right. Now, you call, um, and, and we'll get to the constitutional issues in a second, because that's where I find things to be really fascinating, right? How they get around this constitutionally. But you uh, discussed the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad uh, there, and you call it the catalyst to statehood. Um, how is it that this railroad figures so centrally into the story? Well, the B&O is the primary lifeline uh, of Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and certainly the Union armies in the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brought supplies. It brought soldiers. It was the critical connection between the North and the West and, and the Eastern uh, part of the United States. And in order to maintain the B&O, which passed through, it, 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 at that time it ended in Cincinnati. So it went from Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, east to Wheeling. From Wheeling, it passed through Martinsburg, West, what's today West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, then across Maryland and ended, of course, at its terminus in, in, in Baltimore. It was eventually extended uh, from Cincinnati to Chicago. So it's a critical railroad, and keeping it open became a real challenge for the federal government. Uh, Passing through border states, passing through areas that had a great deal of Confederate activity meant that it was frequently targeted by Confederate forces that 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 ran the gamut from Stonewall Jackson's army to uh, John Singleton Mosby and and his partisan rangers. Mm -hmm. And 
because of this, because there were so many attempts to cut the Baltimore and Ohio, because it was it was vulnerable, they actually ended up assigning a 10,000-man division that became known as the Railroad Division, mm-hmm. uh, commanded by Benjamin Franklin Kelly, whose sole purpose was to guard and maintain the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Well, in that process, it passed through two counties of what are today the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia, were at the time, obviously, Virginia, that are east of the Allegheny Mountains. And those two counties are Jefferson and Berkeley counties. Uh, and Jefferson and Berkeley counties uh, were strongly secessionist in nature. They had strongly supported the secession from the Union, uh, it had filled with su- uh, Southern sympathizers. So they were basically militarily occupied by Union troops. And it is, in fact, the uh, I, I think it's pretty well documented that the purpose of the, the railroad division of keeping the, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and garrisoning all those troops in that area uh, are directly responsible for the creation of the state of West Virginia. Hmm. Because it, it meant that the, the federal government immediately threw its weight behind making sure that whatever it took to maintain the B&O and keeping it open and keeping it available was something they were going to put their, their entire support behind. Yeah, you know, you've anticipated one of my questions. I've always, uh, when it comes to determining the border, and, and of course the, the railroad factors into this uh, uh, pretty significantly, um, the borders between Virginia and West Virginia, I'd always thought about, you know, what about those folks that didn't really get, get on board uh, for the, the secession of West Virginia from Virginia? And, and, and just how vocal were they? I mean, now they're, they're going to be occupied by the United States Army. Um, you know, it would have been uh, kind of a dangerous thing to walk around openly secessionist. Uh, as, I mean, and, and indeed it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how open, how vocal were they in the press or, uh, you know, just uh, just speeching, uh, speechifying, as they used to say? Not, not terribly, because mm-hmm. they knew they'd be suppressed. Mm-hmm. So when the time came to vote on these various referenda, uh, that led to the secession of the Northwestern counties. Uh, the people in, in Berkeley and Jefferson counties, for the most part, weren't allowed to vote. They were told, mm-hmm. you're going with the new state, whether you like it or not. And that is a direct consequence of the uh, military occupation of those two counties by Union forces. And it is what, in fact, sets the stage for the Supreme Court case that came later, because the, the, the whole purpose of filing the lawsuit in the, in the Supreme Court of the United States was to obtain the return of Berkeley and Jefferson counties to the Commonwealth of Virginia because they weren't permitted to vote in the referenda that mm-hmm. led to the creation of the new state. Well, let's talk about the creation of the state constitutionally, because I think that that's pretty interesting. What are the constitutional issues in play uh, when when a when a the formation of a new state is proposed uh, by by whoever is going to propose it, and um, when Congress debated the formation of this new state, how is it that they get around the constitutional issues? Because there are some, and, and then things get a little bit problematic here. Yeah, Article Four, Section Three of the United States Constitution establishes a mechanism for splitting a new state off of an existing one, mm-hmm. and what had to happen in order to fulfill the requirements of Article 4, Section 3 is that the state that is being created not only has to support it, the state that is being split off from 
has to actively support this. And there's precedent for it. It happened several times. Maine was split off of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Vermont was split off of Massachusetts. Uh, Tennessee was split off of, of uh, Kentucky. I'm sorry. Kentucky was split off of Virginia. Sorry mm -hmm. about that. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, in those instances, the, the legislatures, the government of those states supported the creation of these new states. So there was never an issue. So the way that uh, there's sort of a legal fiction, and I think that's the best way to describe it, uh, was created whereby on one hand, you have this new government that's being created for the new state of West Virginia that is being led by Francis Harrison Pierpont and his supporters. And at the same time, you have Pierpont as the governor of Virginia uh, throwing his weight behind and having his rump assembly uh, vote for the splitting off of this new state. So in essence, what you have is the same people voting for the same thing on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. And that's where the constitutional problem arises. Mm -hmm. Because the actual people of Virginia have no say in the matter at this point, because they're no longer in the union, at least from their perspective. Correct. Uh, now, from the Lincoln administration, they are still part of the union, but they're, you know, currently in a state of rebellion uh, and so don't have a say uh, uh, there. Right. You're, you're absolutely correct. That's exactly right. <laughs> so it gets kind of confusing. It's one of those sort of like, you know, uh, the thing you twist your mind around this for a little bit and you start going, well, OK, I see they're 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 you know, they're maneuvering themselves into a position where they can kind of have their cake and eat it, too, in a, in a sense. That's exactly uh, the case. And, and it's, it's why no less than Abraham Lincoln himself had questions about the constitutionality of all of this. Now, when do you start getting into the area where, where you know, legitimacy is, is one of those things that come up in my, in my classes all the time, the legitimacy of secession and, and how the Lincoln administration treats the, the seceded states and treats them kind of as if, depending on the circumstances, uh, as if they are a legitimate nation, you know, they, they uh, like a legitimate nation with which the United States is currently, you know, fighting a war against. Right. Right. Um, but then, but then sometimes they treat them like uh, uh, areas currently in the state of rebellion, depending on the circumstances. You know, what have we got going on here? What we've got going on here is just exactly what you described. Mm. Uh, they, they felt that the Commonwealth of Virginia had abrogated its right to object. And that as a consequence of, of its secession, it had no, no ability to object to the creation of this new state. And consequently, uh, the, the federal government embraced the Pierpont government, even though it had very little in the way of legitimacy outside the counties that make up West Virginia today. You know, our, 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 our government here in California, I think, proposed um, a split uh, between Northern and Southern California that actually went uh, to, the, to, the, to Congress uh, for debate right before the Civil War and the Civil War kind of put that on the back burner. And only recently, I believe somebody proposed, I don't remember who it was, somebody proposed splitting the state of California into multiple states. Uh, and so, I mean, if you think about it, I guess it kind of makes sense. We're, we are culturally very different, especially in the South and in the North, and we sure. almost like two different states anyway. And in fact, that has come up any number of times over the years. I can recall that discussion taking place a couple of different times during my lifetime, and I'm almost 60 years old. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's something that's been going on for a while. Now, at the end of the war, all things said and done, 
Um, is there any effort at all, and, and this, I think we can, we can bring up some of the Supreme Court uh, uh, back and forth uh, that you discuss in the book. Is there any effort uh, after the war to reunite uh, the Western counties uh, and the rest of the state of Virginia? Uh, back yeah, and, well, and let, let me just fill in a little because we, we skipped over something, and that is that because once the legislation finally passed Congress and Lincoln finally signed it on New Year's Eve of 1862, um, there were some changes that had to be made to the new constitution of the new state of West Virginia to reflect uh, a compromise in Congress to uh, gradually emancipate the slaves in the new state. So the, the legislation had a proviso in it that said that 60 days after the constitution was ratified by the voters of West Virginia would join the union as the 35th state. Mm -hmm. That referendum took place on April 20th of 1863. So on June 20th, 1863, West Virginia joined the Union. Now at that point, Francis Harrison Pierpont no longer had the ability to maintain his restored government of Virginia in Wheeling because it's a different state. Mm -hmm. So they pack up the restored government of Virginia and they move it to Alexandria, mm -hmm. just across the river from Washington, DC. And from there, uh, Pierpont continues to do whatever it is he was doing. Uh, and then after the surrender of the Confederacy, or surrender at least of, of Robert E. Lee's army on April the 9th, 1865, at Appomattox, uh, John Letcher was flushed out of, out of office as the governor of Virginia. And Pierpont was placed, finally, in place as the militarily appointed governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So he's now got this legislature that's filled with ex-Confederates who are hopping mad over his role <laughs> in the, in the uh, uh, division of the state. So he figures, okay, and, and perhaps this was uh, a little crass on his part, but he figured, okay, maybe I can win these guys back by first trying to negotiate a return of these common counties of, of West Virginia. So a commission was appointed. Uh, to try and negotiate the return and quickly that failed. So the next step was that uh, uh, Pierpont came up with the idea of filing a lawsuit in the Supreme Court of the United States, which has what's called original jurisdiction. It has the power to determine disputes between states as the, the one and only recourse to try to get uh, Berkeley and Jefferson counties returned to Virginia because they had not been permitted to vote in the various referenda. Mm -hmm. And that set the stage for the lawsuit that got filed in the Supreme Court of the United States in 1866. Okay, so how would that then affect if that were the case? Now, I, I'm, 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 this is a hypothetical, of course, um, but we go back to the railroad again. Now, the railroad goes through those two counties. Uh, it comes back into the state of Virginia. What, in terms of you know interstate commerce and various other things, uh, would they be dealing with at this point if that had been the case? How do they how do they work their way around that? Well, of course, the war is over by then, so I'm not mm -hmm. sure it mattered all that much. Uh, right. uh, the, by that point, you know, you you have Virginia is in the process of working its way back toward being readmitted to the Union. Mm -hmm. uh, in ending the military occupation that, that was part of the process of reconstruction. Uh, I, I don't know that it would have really impacted much of anything because at that point, 
the B&O is no longer the militarily necessary uh, critical supply line. It's just a, a main avenue of, of commerce. And, and I don't know that, that it would have made that big of a difference. Let's talk about the states in, in, in sort of a, in, in a present sense. One of the things I like to think about um, these days are, are animosities that linger uh, post-Civil War. I've written pretty extensively about that. And, I, and I've often wondered about the animosities that may still exist between the states of Virginia and West Virginia today. In your research, did you come across anything like that? Funny you should mention that. Uh, <laughs> earlier this year, uh -huh. uh, a state senator from West Virginia named Charles Trump. No, he's not related. I asked mm -hmm. him that question when I talked to him on the phone, uh, who was interested in these events and had dug into them, uh, actually introduced a resolution uh, in the West Virginia General Assembly that ultimately passed uh, that invited Frederick County, Virginia, which is the county that, that is, uh, has as its county seat, Winchester, mm -hmm. uh, to hold a, a referendum about joining West Virginia because it was supposed to be part of the states that, that or the counties that voted uh, to leave Virginia to join the new state. And for whatever reason, that referendum was never held. So all of a sudden now, the clear blue sky in February of 2020, we have legislation being, uh, well, I guess legislation is not the right word, but at least a, re a resolution uh, being passed by the West Virginia uh, legislature inviting a county of the Commonwealth of Virginia to secede from Virginia and join West Virginia. Um, that didn't go very far. One of the county commissioners of Frederick County was quoted basically saying, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it, Thanks, but no thanks. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're happy where we are. We're, we're going to stay where we are. But I mean, here we are in 2020, and this is still something that is a living, breathing issue uh, between West Virginia and Virginia. Never really has been resolved. And, and, and like many, uh, you know, lingering animosities um, in the border states, uh, you, you see this kind of thing come up um, all the time. And one of the things that I've noticed, and there's been, you know, worked on this, especially uh, in the state of Kentucky, is that here in a modern context, a lot of these states that have been border states that had sent troops into the Confederate armies, though had never officially uh, become Confederate states, although uh, Missouri and Kentucky have sort of, you know, pretend Confederate governments, I suppose. Right. But, but, um, but, you know, they, 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 they had never officially seceded uh, from the Union, yet today lean kind of that direction in their sort of worldview, their sensibilities, what have you. Uh, I was wondering that, you know, I mean, West Virginia is an interesting place because it, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a part of Virginia, it, you know, it gave the Confederacy Stonewall Jackson, for example, uh, who, who had come from a county uh, in Western Virginia. It, it, it is sort of a central you know, West uh, Harper's Ferry, uh, which is now, of course, in the state of West Virginia, was sort of a, a central, a focal point of, of the pre-war, um, you know, sectional tensions. Uh, and, and, and it's an, an important city. Uh, it was an important city for, uh, for both sides to possess during the war. Um, I'm all, I wonder if you had come across anything in the state of West Virginia that would suggest they kind of lean towards that direction now in a post-war context of uh, post-war memory, if they think of themselves uh, as kind of Southern, or do they think of themselves today 
in the orientation that they would have thought of themselves in the antebellum period, kind of looking towards the Ohio Valley, looking towards Pennsylvania? Well, uh, that's, that's a great question. And the answer is, is that I didn't go into it in any level of detail other than my own intellectual curiosity. And from what I can tell and knowing people in West Virginia, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a good friend who lives in, born and raised in Charleston, the state capital, who is the executive director of the West Virginia chapter of the, Ameri uh, the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, uh, who is obviously tied into the legislative uh, body in, in West Virginia and has introduced me to a number of those folks, including this Republican state Senator, Charles Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, they, so I, I've had the, the ability to kind of lick my finger and hold, hold it up in the wind to see which way the wind's blowing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, they seem to be, from what I can tell, uh, very boldly and very strongly proud of their own tradition of being West Virginians mm -hmm. and not particularly aligned toward uh, the traditional states of the Confederacy and not particularly aligned toward uh, the main body of the Commonwealth of Virginia. They are uh, strongly individualistic and, and that carries forward even to this day from everything I can see. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, I've traveled pretty extensively through that area. I go there every year when there's not a pandemic going on. I take my students there in a field trip across the country and we go to, uh, to Gettysburg. Um, and, and they're always struck by just, uh, by, by that Confederate orientation of that town in so many ways. And I think that there's a commercial aspect to that because so many people go there uh, from the Southern states and, and you know, like the, the shops and everything cater to them and there's lots of Confederate flags, but even in front sure. of people's houses. And, and, well, but and it's also six miles north of the Mason-Dixon line right. too, you remember that. Exactly, and so there's, there, there is a very Southern orientation there, uh, I think, and that still, and I think that, that still resonates. Um, and so next year, uh, or this year, if, if I can go, well, this school year, if I can go, hopefully all this stuff will be over by then, I'll get to take my students. So I wanna take a trip to Harpers Ferry. Uh, and, and let them, you know, see if they can detect any kind of differences in terms of how the, uh, you know, public history uh, is conveyed in on one hand in, in Gettysburg, the battlefield Gettysburg, and also at, uh, at West Virginia or, or in Harpers Ferry, which I think that there's some significant differences, which I think they'll, they'll find pretty interesting. Um, I, I agree. And I, I think you're, you're, you're uh, spot on in, in pointing that out. And it's important to, to keep in mind that uh, it that Harpers Ferry is indeed in Berkeley County. Mm -hmm. And it was, Berkeley County had strong secessionist leanings. Its people voted for the ordinance of secession. Uh, and it, it, it wouldn't be terribly surprising to me uh, to find that some of those leanings are still the same to this day mm -hmm. for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of detected that last time I went there. And it's been a minute since I've been to, to, to Harper's Ferry, but, but I'm looking forward to heading back. And what's great about that, that part of the world, see here in California, everything's a zillion miles away. And you've been here, you know that even if you're close by, uh, depending on what time of day you go, it can take you hours to, <laughs> just to get That's out. for sure. <laughs> it's That's like, for sure. We Angelinos are famous uh, for just like, you know, uh, sitting in our cars. I mean, it's great if you like listening to podcasts because I spend a lot of time, you know, I live 
Uh, geez, I live like just a, just a few miles from, from where I teach. And, and still, even then, sometimes it takes me 45 minutes uh, just, to, just, to get to, just to get to school. Um, let, me, let me ask you a question. And, and you are a, uh, a prolific author. You've written uh, dozens of books uh, on the Civil War. And I'm currently, I'm about 100 pages into your book on, Tullahoma, on the Tullahoma campaign. Um, that I, I've, I found, uh, I find just uh, excellent. And you've, you've co-authored this with David Powell. Um, and I know that we were going to talk about West Virginia, but um, I, I wanted to see if I could get a little, just a slight little preview of this one, because I'd love to have you come back on the show and talk about Tullahoma. This, this is a campaign that we don't think much about because it gets dwarfed so often by the campaigns against, uh, you know, Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania and Grant's campaign against Vicksburg. Uh, those two big campaigns really kind of overshadowed this one. Can you give us a little preview of the Tullahoma book? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Keith, and thanks for asking. I, I think one of the reasons why Tullahoma gets overlooked is because there was no uh, signature battle mm -hmm. that, that was the, the cornerstone of the campaign. And it was, as you know, a largely bloodless campaign in that Rosecrans maneuvered Bragg all the way out of Middle Tennessee and virtually out of Tennessee completely with 1,500 casualties in a 10-day campaign. It's remarkable. Uh, it is, in my opinion, the masterwork of strategy of any commander of the entire era. Uh, what he designed and implemented was one of the most brilliant strategic campaigns I have ever seen. It's a campaign of maneuver. It's a campaign of logistics because keeping his army supplied uh, was no small undertaking considering how quickly and, and how extensively it was moving. And it's also a, a really good case study in what happens when your opponent is in disarray. And by, by that, I mean, it would be hard to find a more dysfunctional army than Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. <laughs> and um, all of those things combined to create a perfect storm for, mm -hmm. for Bragg. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good book. And I've looked through some of Rosecrans papers at, uh, at UCLA where, um, where they're housed. He, he became, of course, a real estate developer in, uh, in, in Southern California after the war. And so uh, his papers are pretty extensive here. And he was involved in some veteran stuff out here in Southern California too, which I think is pretty cool. So, you know, um, I've, I've, I've always had an interest in Rosecrans and, 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 and stuff that he was doing during the Civil War. And, and uh, you know what I think is interesting about him is I think he uh, gets his feelings a little bit hurt too because he didn't get the accolades uh, that, that uh, Grant did, for example. Uh, oh, he went, you know, because he doesn't, have, he doesn't have the big battle that makes the headlines, you know? That, that's very clear from, if you read the, uh, some of the things that he said at the end of the campaign, when it was obvious that the, the both of the war department had overlooked him and certainly the newspapers had mm -hmm. uh, his feathers were very ruffled by it. He <laughs> felt like, you know, here I am, I've conducted this absolutely incredible, brilliant campaign that's bloodless and I can't even get a, a, a mention in the newspapers. I know it's fascinating stuff. You Whereas can't you feel bad for him. Massive butcher's bill being paid at Gettysburg. I know. Yeah, yeah. So you feel a little bad for Rosecrans in that, and, and, and I kind of see where he's coming from. I have one final question for you um, before we let you go today. And this has been a really just a fascinating conversation, and, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about it. But what I want to talk about um, uh, very briefly 
is the intersection between law and history. I have um, a lot of students who are uh, who are uh, really enamored with the humanities. They love history. They love talking about history, but they don't necessarily see that as a career path for them, just something that serves as is kind of an interest and they want to go off and because you know let's be honest there's not a ton of money in it uh and 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 and, and they may want to do uh, other things and, and keep history as a hobby but you know i often tell them that there's a lot of things that you can do uh with uh, a degree uh in history um and i was wondering if you had any insights uh for these uh, very ambitious students that i have sure. um, about that about the intersection between those two those two fields and traditionally, and, and when I say traditionally, I'm thinking back even before my time, I graduated from college in 1983, the three traditional pre-law majors were history, political science, and, and English. Mm -hmm. uh, political science for obvious reasons, history for slightly less obvious reasons, but they, nevertheless, they go together. And English because of the, the writing that goes mm -hmm. along with being a lawyer. Uh, in my case, I was, I had a double major of political science and economics. I started out political science and English, and I quickly realized if I didn't get into law school, I wasn't going to have any skills that, that was, would prompt anyone to want to hire me. So I switched to econ, and but I still had enough credits in English to have a minor in it. Um, I find that the methodology of researching history is virtually identical to the methodology I use in doing legal writing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when we're doing legal writing, we're required to have authority for whatever proposition of law we're, we're citing. So the, the proposition of law is A, and I therefore cite Smith versus Jones as the authority for that. Writing history is exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, I have to have some primary source support for whatever it is that I'm saying is uh, a factual assertion. And I write, I write history the very same way I write legal briefs. And it's for that reason. Now, the writing style is very different. You wouldn't want to use a, a legal writing style in, in a history book because people would fall asleep immediately. All the citations, all the parenthetical citations that and and in legal writing the passive voice can be a very effective mm. tool right and we don't do that right but you sure don't want to write a history book in the passive voice right right um so i i literally have had to teach myself two completely different writing styles mm. and i have to shuttle back and forth from one to the other depending on what it is i'm doing but um when it comes to the actual methodology of laying out a case i go where the evidence takes me just like mm. i do when i'm lawyering I find what the evidence is, I, I analyze it, I figure out this is where this is taking me, and I'm going to let the, I'm going to let the, the, the evidence tell the story, and I make sure that if I'm going to assert something, uh, that I have some primary source authority to back up what it is I'm saying, which is why you've, you've obviously are familiar with my work, you've read some, some of my stuff. I, I am nothing if not overly aggressive in footnoting things. And it's because I want to make sure that people realize that anything I'm asserting as a fact is, is being asserted as a fact because I have authority for it. Mm -hmm. So it, it's the same thing. It's, it, there's really no difference between it. And, and I, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that one of my very favorite civil war writers 
is a fellow lawyer, and that being my, my friend Gordon Ray of, of Charleston, mm -hmm. South Carolina. Yep. Um, Gordon writes great history books. Yes, he does. And Gordon is a lawyer by training, just as I am. And he's a litigator by training, mm -hmm. just as I am. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I don't either. And this is something that I tell my kids a lot, of, you know, and, and I have very ambitious students, like I mentioned, and they, and, and, and they want to go on and pursue a field where they can, you know, a lucrative field, a more lucrative field than maybe, than, than, than maybe like, you know, being a historian. Um, and, and I tell them that, you know, uh, if they still want to be a history major, it is the methodology, right? The methodology is the same. You follow the evidence, uh, which is precisely what you've done in your book. And I, this is something that I really appreciate uh, about your your books is they are so thoroughly researched and, and, and so well documented um, that you, you make convincing arguments, you know, and this is, uh, I, I, I kind of like, um, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the Telehoma book because it's kind of making me think about uh, reevaluating. Um, now you mentioned that, that Bragg had a dysfunctional uh, inner circle uh, and I would agree with you on that. I think that he, I don't, he never saw eye to eye with uh, his core commanders and uh, his division commanders, but I'm beginning to go like, okay. As I, my wife would say, they put the fun in dysfunction. <laughs> no doubt about it. Well, he's definitely a character. He's a character, but I am reevaluating my position on Bragg because I've been a, a, a Bragg hater for a long time now. So I'm starting to think a little bit about him uh, and what's Bragg had his merits. I mean, mm -hmm. as an administrator, he was really good. Mm -hmm. He was a good strategist. Mm -hmm. He He really did have some real skills but i think you, you know the more that i have studied him and uh, between my chickamauga work and now the tullahoma work i've put some time into him obviously they had no concept of such things in the 1860s but it seems fairly clear to me that he was on the autism spectrum yeah i think he may very well have been what we today call an asperger's syndrome mm. person uh they don't make connections well they don't have good people skills they don't relate to people well and it's it seems fairly clear to me that that's braxton bragg yeah but at the same time some asperger's people are some of the most brilliant people around mm -hmm. they just don't relate well to other human beings and I, I i i think that if you can look at bragg in that light you can be a little more sympathetic toward him well, I'm certainly beginning to become more sympathetic uh, to Bragg, and and, I, and, I, and I'm going to revise my position on him when I discuss his uh, his his campaigning uh, in Tennessee and in Kentucky in my own class. You know, based primarily on on what I'm reading in your book. So, so uh, that's that's been very helpful. That's been very helpful. And I, I'm one of these I'm one of these kind of historians that that is very open to revision. If if I if I'm presented with a with a with a, um, uh, a well argued. Uh, conclusions and, and, and solid evidence. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to, to revise my position. I do it all the time, um, which is, is I'm, trying to, I'm trying to set an example for my students. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. and, and I commend you for that, Keith, because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. It's really hard. <laughs> it took me a long time to develop. We all have our own preconceived notions. I had my own preconceived mm -hmm. notions about George Custer. Mm. I, for many years, uh, couldn't get beyond the way Custer died. Mm. And everything that I, I thought about Custer, about and particularly in, in his role in the Civil War for the longest time, was tainted by how he died. Mm -hmm. And it was a long, drawn-out process for me to be able to set all that aside and look at, at Custer in the Civil War as being a different person from the, the George Custer of 1876. Mm -hmm. And 
it's not an easy thing to do and I commend you for doing it. Well, thank you. Um, and I think that that's an important lesson that you, you know, just said, we have to understand that people like institutions, like ideologies, like political parties, like whatever, evolve and change over time. Uh, and it's important that we, that we, uh, that we highlight these things. Well, well, you know, uh, this has been an absolutely um, fascinating conversation, Eric, and I appreciate you coming on uh, the show to talk about uh, your, your book, Seceding from Secession, and your new stuff, uh, which, we all, uh, which I look forward to reviewing here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but before I let you go, uh, where can we find you on the internet if we should be so inclined? EricWittenberg.com. All one word. E-R-I-C-W-I-T-T-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. All right, and we'll look on there. And you, like I mentioned before, you're a very prolific author, and you are the uh, author or co-author of dozens. 22. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> you're, make, you're making the rest of us look bad, but that's, and, <laughs> that's a lot. And of I have another one that's being laid out as we speak. I love it. I love it. We'll look forward to that, too. So uh, thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Very good. Thanks, Keith. I appreciate you having me. You got it. So let me take a sec to tell you all about an exciting project I've got going on at Keith Harris History. I've transcribed and podcasted a series of letters written by Confederate prisoner of war Henry A. Allen. Allen was an officer in the 9th Virginia Infantry who was captured at Gettysburg at the Bloody Angle, the culmination of the Pickett-Pettigrew assault on July 3, 1863. He served in various prisoner of war camps for the duration of the war. During this time, he wrote often to his wife, Sarah, back in Portsmouth, Virginia, discussing the day-to-day life in Union prisons and his many thoughts on the war, his marriage and children, and life as a prisoner. I am currently annotating these letters to fill in the missing information and provide links to useful resources concerning Allen in particular and the prisoner of war experience in general. This is an ongoing process where I'll be adding new information and revising my commentary as my research on the topic develops. So please go to KeithHarrisHistory.com, click on the podcast tab, and have a listen to the Civil War letters of Henry A. Allen. From there, you can explore all kinds of resources and book suggestions that will help enrich your understanding of Union prisons and Confederate prisoners.